0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rituparna Padkiri. Today, I'm going to be in conversation with Bandana Purkayastha and Melanie Heath. Bandana Purkayastha is a professor of sociology and Asian and Asian American studies at the University of Connecticut. Her research on human rights, intersectionality, transnationalism, migrants, violence, and peace appears in over 75 books, articles, and chapters globally. She has held elected and nominated positions at the International Sociological Association, ISA, American Sociological Association, ASA, and Sociologists for Women in Society, SWS. She continues to serve on expert committees internationally. She was a fellow at Jawaharlal Nehru University's Institute for Advanced Study in India in 2016 and a Fulbright Scholar to India, University of Hyderabad in 2017. She has received many awards for her research, teaching and mentoring and leadership, including the Hira Bayashi Book Award in 2013, a career award from the Asia Asian American Section of ASA 2016, and SWS's Feminist Mentoring Award in 2018. She was also the co-winner of the prestigious Jessie Bernard Career Award, which recognizes significant contributions to improving the lives of women from the ASA in 2018. Melanie Heath is an Associate Professor of Sociology at McMaster University. She studies the politics of family, sexuality, and gender is the author of One Marriage under God the campaign to promote marriage in America published by the New York University Press in 2012 the How-to of qualitative research with Janice Orini and Stephanie Howells published by Sage in 2016 and her latest monograph Forbidden intimacies transnational regulation of polygamies at the limits of Western Tolerance Stanford University Press 2023. Her work appears in sociology and interdisciplinary journals, including Gender and Society, Science, Sociological Perspectives, The Sociological Quarterly, Context, Qualitative Sociology and PLOS One. She is the president of RC32, Women, Gender and Society of the International Sociological Association. Today, we're going to talk about their co-edited book, Global Feminist Autoethnographies During COVID-19, Displacements and Disruptions, published by Rutledge in 2022. I welcome both of you to this podcast and let me begin by asking you about the motivation behind putting this book together, not just for the two of you, but also for, you know, your to other co-editors particularly at a time when the covid-19 pandemic was rampant and had engulfed this world
0: yes well thank you so much ruchipana um we um we were so excited you know during this difficult period it was so exciting and nourishing in some ways to put together this book because um It brought together people from across academia in a way that um, allowed us to work together in a time of extreme isolation. So Josephine bioko Betts was the president at that time um, in 2020 of um, Sociologists for Women in Society. And I'm actually also co-president now of Sociologists for Women in Society with Mary Alserim. Um, And so, uh, sorry, um, excuse me. Uh, I, so I just wanted to add that, uh, and you know, so she, she um, thought about different kinds of initiatives that she would like she that she wanted to start to to support um, feminists around the, across the globe, and this was one of the initiatives that she contacted uh, me, Bandana Puragasta, and uh, Kosua Darqua about um, thinking together about. Bring, you know, putting together an autoethnography, different autoethnographies from across the globe to be able to document the experiences that people were having at that point. Um, The goal really was, you know, I think for us to think about a way, a, a feminist perspective of connectedness in a time of stream isolation. We were all you know feeling very isolated in different kinds of ways. And so we brought um you know we we really focused on and had conversations around what you could say was a feminist ethical ontological perspective that um tried to understand the ways that being um sub, you know being different kinds of subject subjectivities are subjugated around, you know, race, class, gender, sexualities, um, and in particular, um, in terms of, you know, our positions within academia. Uh, So um, let me let me hand it over to Bandana. I don't know if you have some more words you'd like to say about the
2: I'd like to add one other thing, and that one other thing is, you know, what was remarkable to us. As it happened, we weren't aware of it, but after it was done, what is pretty remarkable is we were really reaching out through our networks. And and it's kind of remarkable how many people said yes. I don't think people ever said no, no. And so it's remarkable now, thinking back about that period, about the level at which we were all just aching to just put into words what was happening to us, all of us, all of these people from all of these countries that we can get to later on, and in different stages in academia, also. so, you know, graduate students, professors of all different kinds. So I, I do want to say that, but you know wow all of us in it together differently but in it together
1: right so could you also talk a little bit a little bit more about the context in which this book is located because it is of course very important yes and i'll i'll
2: start off on that and then if necessary melanie can add to it but i want to start off by thanking you rita for this wonderful series and getting this conversation going So the context in which the work is located is a shift in academia, reflecting a broader shift in society where education, which used to be a public good in many countries, was shifting towards more and more corporatization of profit-making enterprise and so on. So it wasn't like we weren't already aware of what the consequences of those shifts were in all of our lives, but the pandemic made it particularly acute. Because what happened is that the least paid, or most marginalized people within academia, in various ways, they got even more marginalized, they got even, you know, more precarious. That's how their lives became, if I can use that word. And, And it wasn't possible to ignore that anymore. So that is one part of it. But the other part of it is the pandemic actually ushered in a very rapid shift where if earlier there was a sense of we go to work and we come away from work, that boundary was getting rapidly decimated. It was happening, but the pandemic just made it legitimate to do that, that you're working from home, so your home becomes you know, the domain of where work can intrude all the time, 24-7, you know, there can be surveillance of what you're doing and and the fact that it's your home along with homes of other people, uh, th- those things were just shoved aside. So it all became about work, work, work in a particular way. So, so those shifts together... That education has become a profit-making enterprise with consequences on professors, on graduate students, on all other people who are part of this academic realm. The fact that technology and particularly a hyper-digitalization, if you will, was introducing changes into our lives because we were helpless during the pandemic to say, no, that's not a good thing. That was the only way in which we could try to work or keep up our responsibilities. So it was becoming the norm. It was extra demands on our time, extra demands on what belonged to the workspace because the boundary had broken. So, you know, it's within that distressing context, larger context, you know. Uh, that we we were beginning to write about, you know, our experiences during the pandemic.
0: I would just add to that too that um, you know one of the in, one of the ways that these inequalities were being um, that you know that COVID really shone a light on these inequalities. I think was also in terms of health, right, and people's not only um, you know personal health and the way that. You know, people who had—we have some stories in our our, our um, anthology that talk about the ways that people um, who had other kinds of health problems found themselves struggling to get any kind of um, recognition, any kind of help, um, because of you know the the focus was so much on COVID. But then also, mental health, you know, became such an issue for people across the spectrum, um, you know, in societies in general. Uh, you know, but we really we really felt it in our our roles in academia in different ways. Right. So um, people were suffering uh, <clears throat> through this isolation, um, through not being able to, you know, have their networks where they had supports to bring them, uh, you know, the things that they needed to be able to take care of themselves. So I think that's also a really important social context.
1: Right and of course you know in your book there is an attempt to make it uh, you know global and interdisciplinary so how do you do that so you know uh, um i think bandana said very well
0: that we were you know working through our own social networks in many ways you know all of us with our own um you know as rc through you know women gender and society president of the international sociological Association. Um, Bandana, you know, with all of um, her networks through her positions in um, the International Sociological Association and um, through SWS as well, Sociologists for Women's Society. Um, you know, so we we brought together voices of 40 authors from India, Ghana, Australia, Bolivia or Iran, China, Nepal, Canada, Finland, Norway, United Kingdom and the United States. Now, you know, here we, you know, it's a list of all these different countries and places that, you know, people had brought their stories from. Of course, there are huge gaps here still, right? Um, our social networks are, are limited, and that's always true. And, you know, we would have, we had some voices, for example, from Latin America, um, but not as many as we would have liked. Um, But I think that many of our stories um, speak to the transnational nature of the ways that the COVID-19 was experienced. And so, um, you know, we have, for example, one of our authors, Ying Ying Chao, who was writing about his own experience as a Taiwanese um, queer man, you know, that um, that his way of moving back and forth between the two countries, and then experiencing, you know, sort of, um, you know, the kinds of hate that were that were directed at him in the United States after, you know, Trump was president at that time, you know, and there was this sense of, you know, this anti-Asian slur of "go back to your country." Um, so. You know, there is there is also a sense of transnationalism. I think that is very important to the book there's in terms of being interdisciplinary. I mean, again, you know, I think most of the authors have a sociological um, background and perspective, but at the same time, um, I think it's very interdisciplinary in being um, feminist focused. Um, that, you know, we, the, there was a sense that, um, we're bringing together the voices of feminist queer people of all races, migrant statuses, um, for thinking about the ways that, um, our own personal stories ultimately become a way of knowing about inequalities that were being exacerbated by COVID-19.
1: Right. Okay. Uh, My next question is that, you know, your book, you say, becomes a record, an act of bearing witness to some of these experiences during the pandemic. So how does the book do that? How does it become a record? So
2: that is an (laughs) important point that we realized as we were putting the book together, because the pandemic in many ways, and I guess we were privileged enough not to think of some normal ways of life as, as a privilege. And it was a shock that we couldn't go out. We couldn't do so many things. So it was a shock, but beyond the shock, I think what the book records, it's somewhat like a diary, but more than that, it records the moment, the fears, the emotions, the anxieties and anxieties up to, will I survive? I mean, just, Two quick examples. One from the US from a graduate student who wrote that she was making most of her money being a uh, weight staff person, and tips would what keep what would keep her being able to pay her rent. Restaurants closed, all of a sudden she didn't have the money. Or the student from India who had to go back home in circumstances where. Uh, the whole social setup was not conducive to that students being able to work on their PhD. I'm trying to like not identify them, but it it was a reality. So that record at the moment of what's happening, because we can all think back about the period now, and I think we would. Say things perhaps a little differently because that immediate distress is no longer what is driving us every day. So that's one big thing. The other thing that I would very quickly like to mention is you know, it's a record in a way of learning from different countries. When I read what was happening in Ghana, what is striking to me is how the universities in Ghana gave every student a SIM card. Bought the SIM cards and sent them on the, the way their way as a way of dealing with how will education happen across inequalities because everybody may not be able to buy those SIM cards that would enable them to, you know, get on with their education. I'm not saying education was perfect, but the fact that the university thought about that is remarkable to me. It's also remarkable to me to read about Ghana and find out their rates were not so high, the global media has focused on the fact that the vaccines didn't get to the African countries, and that is what they should focus on. I'm not saying no. But what I'm also saying is what they did not focus on are what actually happened in worked, so we would learn the lesson. We know that Taiwan for the longest time did not have these rates, but that Taiwan was barely in the global media. So you begin to see that kind of sorting and sifting of which countries' experiences you know, become important and not important. But the book actually records what was happening. So you have almost a counterpoint. So it, it, it is definitely a record. And, you know, kind of bearing witness to the immediacy of what was happening during the pandemic, the health issues, the crises, the worries, the, you know, the concerns about survival, the displacements into smaller spaces, all all of these things. And I'll stop there and, you know, we can maybe discuss those points later on. Yeah.
1: Melanie, would you want to add anything?
0: Uh, I mean, I think Bandana has, you know, really uh, provided a very uh, well-rounded perspective on, you know, how, uh, you know, that this is a particular record. I mean, I guess, you know, in some ways, things have changed so much since 2020. But we still continue to see the, you know, the ways, for example, China just lifting its restrictions, um, you know, having the you know, having COVID-19 kind of tear through the Chinese cities and towns um, at the same, you know, and and, you know, the the fact that there were so many deaths at that point, you know, it, it kind of highlights the ways that this record Um, continues in many ways it has that continuation and you know we're we're living in a world now where uh you know there are so many and i know this next question is is going to be talking about this but there are so many disruptions Um, So many tragedies and and things that we're dealing with in terms of war, in terms of the aftermath of the earthquakes in Turkey and and Syria. And, you know, so massive shifts in terms of global climate change, Uh, you know, it's, it's a continuum, right? So it's a record. And yet at the same time, there's, I think, a sense of a continuum that is so important for us to gauge.
1: So how do you use the particular concepts of displacement, disruption, and distress in the book? I know it's a very broad question, but if you could bring it together. Yeah, thank you,
0: panna for that question. I think, you know, um, it's when we we're gathering these different stories from colleagues across the globe. We were thinking about like, what is it that unites these stories, right? What is it that people are experiencing at this point um, at that time? And, you know, it became really clear that, you know, these three main concepts, um, you know, sort of captured overall the 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 ways that people were telling their stories around COVID-19. And, um, you know, I think that the disruptions, of course, were very much, uh, you know, global, uh, you know, the blending together and merging of uh, work and home life uh, for some, right, for some people who had the privilege to be able to stay home and not have to work outside the home. Uh, you know, that also meant you know, having, in some cases, isolation, Um, in other cases, other kinds of problems around domestic violence or being in a closed space um, that wasn't necessarily safe or was precarious in different kinds of ways. Um, You know, and then for those who had to work any you know had to continue to work the you know they they were the ones that were the most exposed and again you know those kinds of inequalities really show up in academia as well you know that the most privileged people had the most um, ability to be able to stay home but the but COVID-19 of course really impacted everybody and impacted everybody in different ways uh, you know, in terms of thinking, like, you know, when we thought about this idea of displacements, uh, you know, again, COVID really, uh, you know, displaced so many of what um, what had become to seem as just a natural way of being, right? And so we, we really drew on um, the idea from migration scholars um, to think about particularly the space and time disturbances, you know, that the idea here is that space and time, um, you know, changed, you know, like we know that in many ways, our experiences of space and time are very, uh, subjective. And, um, and that ultimately, uh, you know, that we, people were displaced in ways that ultimately, uh, you know had huge impacts on their ability to for example do scholarship to teach to um to be able to do what had become so much a part of their normal lives um so and then you know the the distress and you know we i think we think about distress we use that word in particular because you know many of the stories really um talked about trauma, you know, and there were particular traumas um, where um, you know some of our colleagues had people who died from COVID. Um, some of our colleagues had particular traumas around their own health issues, but I think overall there was also, we didn't want to overuse the idea of trauma, that trauma um, can be overgeneralized in some ways. But the underlying theme of distress really captures in some ways the fact that no matter where you stand um, in terms of your you know, sort of privilege and, and how what kinds of supports you had to be able to deal with the pandemic, there still was so much distress. And there was distress on so many levels that these stories told. So I think um, you know, that there was really an important way of capturing the broad themes to think about these three concepts. And I'll leave it there. And I don't know if, um, Bandana, you have anything.
2: I I'll add one small sideline to that. And I think in a way it's a bit of a personal sideline. So I began to read about displacements really because some Indian scholars, Kolkata Research Group, Ranabe and so on, were writing, had been writing about it for by now more than 20 years. And you know, I I just realized that if you come at it from the migration perspective, the whole issue is how is your normal life disrupted? That's where they were coming out from. And that was absolutely true during the pandemic. But the other theme that I want to highlight is, you know, how quickly the country shut down their borders. And more importantly, to whom they shut down the borders. It wasn't like the borders were uniformly shut down for everybody. If you look at that time period, it just brought back again, at least sitting in the global north with all the talk about humanitarianism and help and all all of that, even during the pandemic. And then the borders are hard shut down kind of based on the older colonial ideas of who might be disease carriers and who might not, that racism was so evident, was so evident. And the hard border shutdowns actually acted almost like prisons for some people because they could not go back home. They may not have wanted to be where they were, but they could not go back home. And that played out in so many scenarios around the world. People, you know, transportation means shut down. People are trying desperately to go back home. You know, maybe they're walking. Maybe they are trying to go to third countries at international level. There was so much of that displacement in the sense of confinement also, where people had expected that, you know, moving from one place to another was a normal part of their lives and all of a sudden it was not. So, you know, I think that was the other important lesson that we learned along the way. So...
0: And if I could just add to that, Bond, and I think, you know, for, for some families, being completely separated and not being able to join each other also was a real, um, challenge of the, uh, I really appreciate what you said about the borders. It's exactly right. You know, that the borders being shut down meant not only that people couldn't move anymore, but that families were separated, you know, that they couldn't join each other at times. Right. And so, um, you know, people who had important relationships where, you know, you're in this, you know, mode of crisis, um, you know, you you couldn't even, it wasn't even just necessarily the borders. It was like, you couldn't travel to another um, province or another state or, you know, for some people, the sense of being in lockdown was very, very extreme, right? So I agree with you completely.
1: So how important is the method of autoethnography to capture these stories? Because the book itself is titled Global Feminist Autoethnographies.
2: So I should say that, you know, we agonize long and hard about using the word autoethnography because we also write about it in the book because, you know, sitting in the global north, there's a particular, you know, lineage of what we understand autoethnography to be. And it comes from this idea that you can take... So it comes from a previous idea to a certain extent of institutional ethnography, you know, and institutional ethnography says if you can take individuals within, you know, institutions, and you can work back and figure out what the structure of the institution is. So. Autoethnography, ethnography in some ways is similar, that you take your own biography and what's happening to you, so you're the individual, but you reflect upon it and try to figure out what these structures are that are affecting you. So as far as that general idea goes, that's fine. But the truth is that, you know, if you are telling stories or you're writing biographies or you're writing you know, diaries and deep reflective ways, there's a lot of overlap in those. And we really agonized when we were writing this, you know, together with colleagues around the world, because in some ways, who were we to say, autoethnography ethnography is the term and storytelling is the term, or some other term doesn't fit equally well. And, and we talked about it in the book, and we ultimately kept the term autoethnography in the title because, you know, for a vast majority of the people that being able to analyze what you're saying um, kind of, you know, seem to relate to autoethnography. But as I said, we we agonized about the use of the term and we continue to agonize about it. And we absolutely and positively made sure we did not tell our partners across the globe that this is the only method to be used only in this way. If they asked, we said, this is how we understand it. But then if people said it's storytelling or biography, then that's what it was going to be but it needed to have the analysis. It wasn't just a description of what was going on. It needed to be an analysis of what are the larger circumstances in which you're reflecting on your life. And so that's how, you know, the stories of displacement. So we were analyzing displacement. We were analyzing disruptions. We were analyzing distress. But is it only autoethnography? We called it that that's good enough up to a certain point, and perhaps does not make sense at other points. And that's a part of the working together with multiple people, right, trying to honor various people's perspectives. So yes, it, it, it's something we still think about. If, if I could
0: just add to that, I would also say, you know, one of the motivations for us in thinking about autoethnography as the framework, even though we did have so many discussions around, you know, is it appropriate to use even this term, right, autoethnography, because I think for, for some it might even, you know, feel like um, it could leave out certain voices. But you know the the, the idea of ethno, autoethnography really does come out of a tradition of black feminist thought and standpoint theory um, that you know focuses on self reflexivity and the importance of that. And so you know, as Bandana said, as, as if people did ask about it, you know, we were able to share sort of the, that's you know our understanding um, and and also of course you know say we understand these are stories and they're stories that are reflecting on you know your position within you know the broader context of the pandemic and the cultural and you know the analysis that you would bring to that within your own um, academic perspective and, and system of knowledge Right.
1: <clears throat> last question uh, how do you think the book contributes to the growing, you know, global feminist dialogue within academia? Yeah, so
0: um I'll I'll start with that one. Um I think that uh you know, it's it's a really it comes back to that idea of the the record, right? That um that this book really establishes uh an important um, moment in time of the pandemic where people were able to share their stories in ways that um, showed how the pandemic enhanced job reallocations. It, you know, the shrinking opportunities to find alternative ways of making money for some people who were in more precarious positions, all of the, the, the types of um, dialogues that we're having across the globe around the ways that Um, growing inequalities are impacting people differently um, between the global North and the global South, but also within both of those contexts. Uh, And so I think it's so important to be able to recognize, for example, how, um, you know, certain places like, you know, Boundan was talking about Ghana and, you know, the giving out those SIM cards um, you know, places like fin- Finland where, um, you know, having government workplace partnerships made um, made it easier to deal with some of the worst effects of the pandemic, right? So you have a more active welfare state. The recognition, you know, that certain governments do more and have more, um, ultimately, more ways of... Um, addressing the inequalities that are existing. Uh, So, you know, these are really important to document. And at the same time, I think, you know, in our our feminist global dialogues at this point, we see the ways that um, authoritarianism and authoritarian regimes uh, are increasing. And so, you know, our our book really documents how the pandemic allowed those authoritarianist um, regimes to 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 build on people's weariness their vulnerability their marginalization to uh, in the case of academia of course um, lay off people um you know take away positions uh you know in the global neoliberal neo- structure of that you know it was an opportunity for more cutbacks for more you um, for more ways of isolating certain people and making them more marginalized. Uh, You know, and we have have so many stories that sort of speak to, you know, the ways that academia, um, you know, marginalizes, you know, certain people. I mean, even, you know, the story of Panara that, you know, the Indian context where, um, you know, once the university shuts down, what happens to the students? You know, what happens to people who come from backgrounds who are, are, you know, who don't have families where they can go home to have internet access, who can, you know, who can be able to be connected to libraries to continue their research? Life really shuts down, and so I think this broader um, global feminist dialogue. Uh, this book really contributes to that by showing the ways that something like a pandemic can increase those vulnerabilities and that marginalization. I'll, I'll oh. end there and I'll let Bandana, um, I'm sure she has some
2: wonderful things. Um, I'll add two quick stories and then I'm going to then turn that question back to you, Ritpurna, to for you to say what you thought about it. So the two quick stories I'm going to add is because these are well, I'm calling them stories, but really deep reflective questions. So one, this is from the u s, where one of our uh, you know authors wrote that Donald Trump was in power and very abruptly shut down the portals of the immigration system. So a lot of the people who were on foreign student visas were suddenly in this place of am I going to become an illegal? migrant or migrant without documents because of this abrupt shutdown so the fact that that can happen on whatever guys and what does it do to the person caught in that situation through no fault of theirs was something that was you know pretty acute during that time on the other hand from finland the our author colleague reflected on the idea that you know as feminists we are always talking about you know what are facts how do we understand facts you know if you get big data does it mean something but as she pointed out that at that point everybody in Finland was hungry for those facts so were we what are the numbers like is it rising is it falling like what is happening Uh, so you know we understood and continue to stand by deep analyses and, you know, details and so on. Mm-hmm. But it also, you know, all of a sudden there was this, okay, now we are turning to these other people whose data we <laughs> have sometimes questioned, but we need it now. So, you know, the, these were part of the nuances that we were dealing with. And, and I think in terms of feminist dialogues, these are issues to you know, keep thinking about, keep thinking about, so how do we think about this merger between the big data And or, you know, the quantification that we were hungry for versus the contextualized, meaningful data that we have always promoted. And I stand by what we promoted, by the way. It isn't that. But how do we resolve it? Uh, That definitely, you know, was and is and should be. Uh, global and feminist question, but I unless Melanie has something to add, I want to turn it back to you, Rithuparna, because you know what? What in your opinion do you see as being a global and feminist dialogue at all through your own experiences?
1: Well, uh, I think the book provided an opportunity to learn from so many corners of the world because, like you talked about numbers, yes, we are all we were all hungry for numbers at that time but today those numbers have disappeared from public memory and all we have is these stories because COVID is still there the remnants still exist and in India countries like you know in the global south even in the global north you feel it but it's only through these stories the narratives that you know COVID still continues to persist the numbers have stopped coming long back and I think The book and uh, things like, you know, uh, communication through the internet gave us that option to even hear and listen to others. Otherwise, we would all be isolated and, you know, going through all of it alone and it would have been much tougher. Therefore, I think, you know, it is in that sense feminist because we are challenging a status quo. We are making an intervention and at the same time, of course, trying to broaden the idea of the social. So Absolutely. Ben, yeah, basically. Yeah. do Melanie you
0: want is, to add something? <laughs> okay, Melanie, did you add something? No, I think I think that's a wonderful way to end because I think yes. it
1: just captures exactly the spirit of
0: the book itself. Yes. So thank you, Richard yes. Parna, Parna.
1: Thank you so much to both of you. Uh, I know it's a wonderful book. I have read it cover to cover, page to page. And I would also like all other listeners to go back and read it. And thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a pleasure.